Welcome to the Primal Endurance Podcast. Slow down and enjoy the show, where we rap, literally, about everything you need to know. I'm your host, Brad Kearns. Are you ready? Let's go. Hey, Brad Kearns to tell you about Organifi Green Superfood Powder. This is a great tasting green powder. It's amazing, but true. Mix it in water and it's delicious. So you'll use it every single day to get a nice dose of greens, especially if you're traveling, especially if you're trying to go keto and you're not eating that many carbs. This is a great way to ensure that you get all the nutritious benefits in a variety of fruits and vegetables. Mix it in your smoothie. I mix it with my ketone supplement. So even when I'm not eating, I get my greens every single day. Why don't you try some? Go over to Organifi.com, that's O-R-G-A-N-I-F-I, and enter the code PRIMAL at checkout, and you will get 15% off your first order. Enjoy. Welcome, listeners. I'm here in the studios with Dr. Lindsay Taylor, beautiful Folsom, California, and we have the privilege again of welcoming Dr. Phil Maffetone, the Oracle from Oracle. Welcome. And this time, since we had that great wide-ranging discussion last time, we're going to hit you with some rapid-fire Q&A. I believe a lot of these questions are emanating from your incredibly popular Facebook group called the, what's it called, Lindsay, the MAF group? The Maffetone Method Facebook group. So go join that. There's 3,600 members already. I don't know if Phil's even aware of it, but... I'm, I'm, I've heard about it. I tried to um, join it. They wouldn't let me. Um, <laughs> and, and I'm glad because I'm now able to say hello to all of those people, which uh, I've not been able to do. So I'm honored. Yeah, it's a great group. So you're, I joined the group, this Mafto Method group on Facebook, I don't know, maybe like a year ago, and it had a thousand people in it, give or take. I think I was there when they crossed a thousand, and now it's gone up to 3,600 plus people in the last year or so. So we're seeing the popularity of the Maffetone training method just explode. Um, you know, and then we have people coming over from Maffetone to primal endurance and kind of vice versa because our methods are so complementary. So um, I thought we could do some questions specifically related to Maffetone method, you know, heart rate style training. Um, since we did a lot of talking about diet and, and nutrients and fueling last time. Sure. That sounds good. Do we have to talk fast? Okay, yeah, yeah it'll be fun. Rapid fire, which um, I don't know how well we're going to do with that, but we'll try. <laughs> you know, one thing that's so important, it's the centerpiece of your, your aerobic training method, and this has been um, hammered into our heads for over 30 years now, is that importance of the maximum aerobic heart rate and training at aerobic heart rates in order to develop your fat burning capabilities and avoid the burnout, breakdown, illness, injury that occurs when you are exercising at a slightly too elevated heart rate and what we like to call chronic cardio. You have disparaging terms for it also, overstress patterns and whatnot. So you've established this for so long with great success, uh, the 180 minus age Bill Maffetone formula known as the MAF formula. And that 180 minus age correlates to your predicted maximum aerobic heart rate. In your books, you give those adjustment factors where you might be adding five beats if you've been really successful, and you might be subtracting five or 10 beats if you're on medication or had numerous setbacks, illness, injuries, things like that. So we identify this maximum aerobic heart rate. Um, This has been proven effective by the elite athletes in all the endurance sports for now We could really go back 60 years to Arthur Lydiard training his athletes aerobically and having them succeed even at uh, high high speed middle distance running. And then lately, there's been a little bit of a um, sort of a uh, an effort to 
kind of challenge this and allow for people to increase above their defined maximum heart rate if they're eating in a fat adapted pattern and so forth. So I want to get your thoughts on this modification of the maximum aerobic heart rate due to healthy dietary habits or other uh, attributes. Yeah, the idea of of being able to train at a higher heart rate because you're you're metabolically healthier, uh, so-called fat adapted, uh, because you're burning more fat in the course of your workout in the course of the day, which is just the way your metabolism should work. Um, the idea of, of raising your heart rate uh, because of that is 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 nonsense. It just doesn't work. Um, I tried that in the early early 80s and I, I, I tried it with athletes in the early 80s and I got in trouble. Um, I got the athletes in trouble. The problem is um, that you are all automatically adjusting things because you're, you're now healthier, because you now have a better metabolism, because you're now fat burning. You're going to allow your body to, to ultimately uh, get faster and faster at the same heart rate, and you're going to recover better, and you're going to, uh, you know, so many uh, health factors are going to improve. You're going to reap a lot of benefits, in other words, from this improved fat burning. And one of them is not that you can train, uh, you know, with uh, by adding 20 beats or 10 beats to your MAF heart rate. It just doesn't work. I, I've I've been through it. Um, we see very similar increases in stress when we add those numbers uh, to the to, to the to the training heart rate. And I, I should note that it, the 180 formula didn't come from out of the blue. It came from the fact that in the beginning I was evaluating athletes in a very extensive way, uh, not only in my office doing a physical exam and doing a good history, but I would go to the track and I'd spend a lot of time watching the gait of an athlete and comparing it to different heart rates. And I noticed that at a certain heart rate, their gait would be not only much better than if their heart rate was a few beats higher, but they would fatigue less over the course of 10, 15, 20, 30 minutes at that certain heart rate versus another heart rate. And then it was a couple of years later, I was talking about this in a lecture and someone asked, how can we do that? How can we figure out what our best training heart rate should be? And I was a little embarrassed because I didn't have an answer. Um, and I went back to my, my office and I started crunching the numbers. And uh, to make a long story short, I figured out that um, if we subtracted a person's age from 180 and that made some adjustments that would individualize the process, um, which is what I was doing in my physical exams and my, um, uh, my evaluations of, of the athlete, um, I, I could end up uh, using this formula at the same, same heart rate as if I figured it out uh, um, Manually, and so um, the short answer, <laughs> Brad, is no. You don't add you don't add any beats to that just because you're you're burning more fat. The benefits you're going to get are 
huge uh, on the fat burning and uh, um, just keeping your heart rate where it is. Yeah, I just want to reiterate that you said um, what you said a minute ago, because I think that that point gets overlooked all the time, which is that there are many reasons why you want to kind of fix the intensity at which you're doing the majority of your exercise. And, you know, the, the nutrient substrates you're using is only one of them, right? So if you're trying to keep your your exercise at an intensity that's optimal for building your aerobic system, you know, just because you're burning fat efficiently, that's one variable that goes into the equation when you're deciding how hard you should be working out, but it's certainly not the only one. Exactly. That one variable is as important as it is, it's one variable and there are many others. And uh, when we start looking at one variable and, and um, putting it on a pedestal and kind of bowing down to it, we, we get in trouble because we ignore the rest of the, the body. Now, what about the question that comes up a lot, Phil, where, um, you know, obviously 180 minus age is an estimate and it's an estimate that's been fit to a pretty good sample of people. But in reality, you know, if you were to have perfect data for every individual and were to map out everyone's individual maximum aerobic heart rate, then it would probably look something more like a bell curve, you know, and, and the the mode or the, you know, the mean would look something very close to 180 minus age. But, you know, in reality, each of us is an individual and exists somewhere on that bell curve. You're exactly right. And um, I don't use the one, the 180 formula when I'm working with an athlete. I never did. Um, when I came up with this 180 formula, in the early 80s, I, I still did my one-on-one extensive evaluation with an athlete to come up with their training heart rate. And I noticed it was, it was typically within a beat or two of that 180 formula, which was kind of interesting to see. I would sometimes see it was a little bit higher or a little bit lower. Um, and even today when I'm working with an athlete, I, I I try to get as much information to individualize it more and typically find that it, it follows uh, the 180 formula as well. Um, my recommendation for people is that if you're, you're honest with the 180 formula, and that's a big, that's a big, big issue. You've got, got to be honest when you go through this 180 formula uh, because if you're, if you're injured all the time and you can't admit it, or if you're over fat and you can't admit it, you need to make an adjustment in your heart rate for that. Um, but the, the proof is really in the MAF test, which is, are you getting faster at that MAF heart rate as the months go by? And if you're not, then there's something wrong. And that something may be that you're, you're a few beats higher maybe than you should be in your training heart rate. And is that something that you think is, is that a time when it would be worth you know, spending the money to go get metabolic testing done? Or is it better to just start you know, playing around with it yourself and see if you can kind of troubleshoot? I think most people can uh, experiment on their own. Uh, a metabolic test is really nice, very, very valuable, but um, you need to find someone uh, who is going to work with you who is going to pay attention to your pre-test meal, uh, let you warm up beforehand, uh, measure the right things, and uh, make uh, you know make an analysis that um, is going to let you uh, 
go off and experiment some more, which is really what you're doing. It's only a test. It's another test. It's another uh, data point. If that test shows that you're 20 beats higher, then obviously something is wrong because the 180 formula should get you to the aerobic threshold, which is a, a well-established physiological level. Um, the 180 formula came from me. After I developed the 180 formula, I realized, hey, <clears throat> hey, this is actually the same as that traditional aerobic threshold, which not many people even know there's an aerobic threshold because they always think of anaerobic threshold. But it's a, a well-established threshold. So uh, if you're going to do a metabolic test, make sure you mention that you're interested in uh, knowing what your aerobic threshold is in addition to your anaerobic threshold. Good tip. So I have some questions from um, members of this math telemetry group are, that are related to the adjustments on the um, math formula. So let me just, again, rapid fire these at you. So I'm just going to read this one. So if I'm ignoring my recommendation or your recommendation to take 10 beats off because I'm on thyroid medication, are all my workouts essentially in the black hole? So if I'm working out at 180 minus age, but I'm on thyroid meds, so I probably should be 180 minus age minus 10, and I'm conveniently forgetting to subtract the 10, am I always in the black hole? Well, I don't know what the black hole means, but there's a problem with that scenario. Two problems. Uh, uh, one is training becomes a stress at that level. Um, the, the thyroid, when it's not functioning well, is a stress. Thyroid medication may or may not reduce that stress. There are side effects of thyroid medication, especially with recovery uh, from a workout. Um, there are uh, uh, interactions uh, maybe with other medications. But the, the most important thing is um, the thyroid problem needs to be addressed. Th thyroid medication is not the answer to the problem. The problem uh, in, in many cases, I would, I would, from experience, I would say in most cases, the problem is uh, fixing the thyroid needs to be done. Um, there are situations uh, such as surgery and, and uh, other problems where there's a, a permanency with thyroid dysfunction where you, you need to be on medication. But in most cases, um, I've been able to help, help people get off thyroid medication. There's no easy fix. There's no easy recommendation. Um, but uh, there's a problem. and while you're trying to figure out how to fix the problem, staying at 10 beats below to reduce the exercise stress so that there's actually benefits coming from stress now uh, is very, very important. Same question. What about for hormonal birth control? If you're, on, if, uh, you're a woman who's on hormonal birth control, do you need to subtract 10? Uh, most certainly. Um, the idea of subtracting 10 when you're on medication is um, a number of things. One, uh, in many cases, like uh, thyroid medication or uh, blood pressure medication, there is an underlying uh, problem, H hypertension, hypothyroidism. In the case of birth control, there are potential side effects of this medication. There's a big stress on the liver because the liver has to break down these hormones. There's a... Um, a load, a nutritional load, uh, which uh, may or may not 
exist, you need more uh, uh, B vitamins, for example, to uh, break down these hormones. And so you can create a, uh, an imbalance nutritionally. Uh, and just taking a B vitamin supplement may not solve the problem because those synthetic B vitamins don't always work in, in those cases. So um, basically, there's a metabolic stress on the body. And the, the reason for reducing the heart rate is because it's an adaptation to stress. We want to reduce the stress of training while you're figuring out how to deal with, with that stress. And, and in the case of birth control, if you uh, don't want to come off birth control, uh, then um, staying at 10 below is, is where you're at for now. In real life, this is a real challenge for people to embrace, especially the medication part, because it's such a routine part of life. And so many athletes have something in their medicine cabinet and 10 beats is a huge chunk off of that. But even beyond that, um, there's the, the counter argument is that if they bump up their speed at every workout a little bit, they will have a faster rate of improvement than when they're forced to slow down to 11, 12 and 13 minute miles when they're used to running a half marathon at eight minute miles. And I'm not making up these numbers. I'm getting emails from people saying, look, I can do a half marathon in 141, And all of a sudden I got to strap this watch on. You're telling me I got to do a jog walk. So if we could just hit that rationale a little harder um, and, and convince people. Sure. Very, very important question. And, and certainly one of the uh, discussions when, when this topic comes up. And, and the answer, in part, is the difference between short-term and long-term. Um, uh, short-term, uh, we're talking about, you know, over the next six months, say, that's short-term, relatively speaking, from a training standpoint. Um, if you want to improve, if you've got a, 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 a big race in, in four, five, six months, and you want to perform your best, uh, one of the ways of doing that is to overtrain. Um, you, we see it all the time. People train uh, too hard. Um, they, uh, they, they push themselves. They might get injured. Uh, they might miss some training. They come back, push even harder because they're making up for lost time, blah, blah, blah. Uh, and then um, uh, down the road, they run a personal bet. They run a great race. They they do um, an incredible. Um, you know they they're on the podium uh, at the Ironman, and um, this does not mean what they've done is good or healthy or the best training uh, plan. It means they've put their body into an overly sympathetic, stressful state. And they've relied on that stress to get the benefits of performance on race day. And we see it all the time. Look at, just look at the covers of the magazines over the years and <clears throat> see who's on the cover and where they've disappeared to in many cases. Um, these people reach a, a, a very high level of performance. They're, they're, you know, they develop national fame or world fame. And then all of a sudden you don't hear from them anymore. And this is true in every sport. And I've, I've worked in every sport. Um, building yourself up by stressing your body and training will get you to the starting line 
in that sympathetic rage state and you will perform really well if you hit it right, if you don't fall apart first. But that doesn't mean it's the good thing to do. Instead, we should be looking for long-term benefits so that we can extend our athletic career, so that we can perform better and better as the years and decades go by. And if we want to be racing uh, at age 90, uh, we should have the option of doing that rather than being forced to retire at age um, 35 or 40 or 50. Um, so I think uh, uh, the other important part of this is, is what I just mentioned is that the MAF test will give us the answer. So if we say, all right, um, let's, uh, let's reduce our MAF heart rate by 10, I'm going to do my MAF test at that level. And as the weeks and months go by, I'm seeing that my pace is improving, which means I'm burning more, more fat now. I'm getting healthier. I'm getting more fit. That's perfect. Now, if you say, I'm, I'm not going to listen to Mephitone, what does he know, you know about my, my vacations? Uh, I'm not going to reduce my heart rate by 10. I'm going to train at that MAF heart rate. Uh, but I'm going to monitor my MAF test. Most likely what's going to happen uh, is that long-term, your MAF test is going to get worse. And, you know, MAF is an open system. It works no matter what you're doing. You could be a no pain, no gainer. You could, you could be doing everything wrong in training and eating. But if you use some of the tools that the MAF program has, like the MAF test, what you'll find is that what you're doing isn't working because you're getting unhealthy and unfit. And so I, I recommend if you want to experiment and not reduce the heart rate by 10, Feel free to do that, but monitor your progress. And if that progress is not being realized, then you've shown, you've proven that uh, it's not working. So it's really, it's really pretty simple. It's, it's individual, and, and uh, there's no argument there. Uh, the only argument is, are, are you willing to sacrifice your health? And, and unfortunately, many people would say, well, well yeah. And, and, you know, as a, as a practitioner, as a clinician, I, I, I don't want any part of that. Yeah, I think people, they don't know any better because they're trapped in a bubble of the prevailing psychology of the endurance athlete, which is that you are obligated to struggle and suffer and have crash out sessions on the couch in the afternoon during your buildup phase to your important race. But I think that graph that we found, I don't know if it's on your website, we'll try to grab it for the show notes. Um, I think explained it just beautifully and, and so memorably where you have the um, improvement in your maximum aerobic function test and you get a very uh, rapid improvement when you're training in that sympathetic state, when you're overtraining and tr doing high stress workouts that are stimulating an immediate fitness response. And then you start to get to the jagged part where you start slowing down, you might have a little bit of a bump and you just struggle with um, consistency as well as 
long-term regression and fitness versus the beautiful uh, comparative graph where you're just experiencing a steady and uninterrupted improvement in your aerobic function, which translates directly to uh, success on the race course and also longevity. And I think we told these stories in Primal Endurance, uh, quoting you and then uh, relating the stories of Mike Pig and Mark Allen and people that that raced at the very highest level of the sport and were winning the championship events, but halfway through their career were coming to this crossroads where they couldn't physically work harder anymore. They were noticing things falling apart like Mike Pig and his digestive problems, and they had to recalibrate and eventually return to uh, as good or better than when they were training their asses off every single day and slamming their heads against the wall. Yeah, you're you're absolutely right, Brad. That chart um, is, is a very important one for people to look at. But I think part of it too is that we think in endurance sports very different than than other sports. Um, in endurance sports, the mistake is often that we need to train hard to race hard, and and that that is not always the case. Um, we can train hard some of the time, or, or in many cases, we don't have to train hard. Mike Pig's best year was uh, after a year of just training at his aerobic heart rate and not doing any anything anaerobic. Um, when you know the body has the ability to perform at, at levels higher than we're, we're usually performing in training, sometimes significantly more. So um, the idea of, of you know, tr- training at uh, 10K pace or marathon pace, uh, because that's the pace we're going to be racing at, is an old track and field uh, idea, w- which has merits if you're running 200 or 400 meters. Um, but this is endurance, and we don't, we, we don't race at that level. We race at a much lower percent of VO2 max. So um, that's a, a big factor to consider as well. I do have to say that we've had some people both in the Mathetone Method group and then in our Primal Endurance Facebook group. Just recently, we've had a bunch of examples of people coming back and saying, I just PR'd and I wasn't even trying and I didn't know. And you know, I was, if I had known I could run that fast, I would have run even faster and done a better PR. Um, so we're seeing a lot of examples of that where people are racing fast. Yeah, people, people complain that they have to train slow initially. Then they complain that they have to run faster because they're getting faster. Then they complain when they run their PR that, oh, man, if I knew it was going to be this easy, I would have run harder in the beginning. Yeah. And, you know, back in when I had my clinic and I had a lot of runners, um, I had 229 test subjects and I uh, put them through a three to six month base training period where they trained only at their aerobic or their may have heart rate or slower. They didn't do any weight training, no strength training either. And um, they didn't eat any junk food. And 76% ran a personal, these were seasoned runners. So they had a lot of, um, uh, they had a history of, uh, of a lot of races 76% 76% ran a personal best in a 5K. In a 5K, those are those are pretty quick races. Um, and the ones that didn't, and I didn't follow up, and I really kind of hit myself for not keeping tabs on enough people, but, but a good number of people who ran a second 5K ran a personal best. They just didn't have a good race day that first time around. 
But I, I've seen that my whole career. And when when you tell people that, it's one thing. But when they experience it, uh, they want to tell the world. Um, and there's nothing like experiencing it. Let's talk for a sec about people who are, um, you know, getting up there in years. And so we know that there's a, a math adjustment when you hit age 65, right? Um, but what about for people, you know, experienced runners, people have been running successfully for a long time, you know, maybe they're in their like mid, late fifties say, so they don't, they haven't hit that 65 age where they're going to start to adjust, but every year they're seeing their math, their 180 minus age, heart rate tick down one more and it's getting lower and lower, but they still feel really physically fit. They're still running at a, you know, or, you know, biking or whatever at a high level. Um, do you still recommend they stick pretty strictly to 180 minus age? Or is there anything for people who have been doing it for a long time and have had a lot of success? You know, are there any special considerations for them? A good, really good question. Two misconceptions there. Um, one is that 65 and older issue. Um, the only issue with 65 and over is I never had enough data to evaluate people who were 65 and older. We're, we're talking about um, starting to experiment with, literally experiment with athletes, uh, with people, even you know people just starting to exercise. I, I took a lot of this into account. But... Uh, I, I remember what, you know, in that, in that 229, uh, runner cohort I mentioned a few minutes ago, um, I think there was only one person over age 60. He was 62. Um, we didn't have a lot of 60 plus runners back in the late seventies and early eighties. And so, in, in figuring this stuff out, a lot of it is data-based. I didn't just make up these numbers. And the problem was there weren't a lot of 65-year-olds. In fact, I don't remember anyone over 65. So that data didn't exist. So my recommendation was that you might have to add a bunch of, of beats, but you figure it out. That's that's the, really the recommendation. The other issue that you mentioned, which, which is a very good point is that nowhere does it say that every year you have to reduce your heart rate by one beat. In fact, in the big book of, uh, endurance training and racing, I have to remember the title. I should have a list of those titles. The yellow book. You can just call it the yellow book and the red book. (laughs) What I talk about there is that we keep that 180 minus the age formula if if it's if it's working if you've got the right number which means you're feeling good and you're getting faster at that heart rate then about every 3 to 5 years you might have to reduce that maf heart rate by a beat or two depending on your condition if you've been doing well for those 3 to 5 years then you wouldn't reduce it as much. But if you are not doing well, then the aging factor is maybe catching up, so you might have to reduce it more. The bottom line is that when you do make an adjustment, you're going to follow your MAF test to see if indeed you've reduced it and allowed your body to get faster at that same heart rate. 
the idea of reducing heart rate every year is, is, is absolutely not true. So it really what you're saying is that 180 minus age is always your starting point, kind of no matter where you are. So, and then you, then you work from there. And so anytime that either you're starting over or that maybe you're finding that your training response isn't what it once was, then you always go back to 180 minus age as step one. Yeah. Yeah. But don't be like the guy who I, I, you know, talked with uh, years after I had worked with him. He was doing really, really well. Uh, he eventually went off course, um, had some bad health problems as a result, some bad physical problems as a result, um, got back, uh, decided he'd start all over again, got his heart monitor again, started training, nothing worked. He finally contacted me. I said, well, what did you do? He said, well, I, you know, I, I, uh, I used the same heart rate I used, um, from 10 years earlier. I said, no, it doesn't, <laughs> doesn't work that way. Well, I'm really glad to hear you say this though, because my birthday was yesterday and I was going to be sad <laughs> about losing another heartbeat. So, well, what it means is that you're physiologically younger today than you were yesterday. <laughs> Great. Compared to your, compared to your chronological age. And really what you're doing every three to five years is you're saying, I've built my health these last three to five years. I've gotten more fit these last three to five years. So I haven't had to reduce my heart rate, even though I'm chronologically older, I'm not physiologically older. Yeah, I think people take liberties with that though, Phil. That's my experience is they they justify like, well, I only got injured three times and had had two colds last year. So I am progressing according to that question on the uh, on the uh, the adjustment factors or they um, you know, we'll, we'll do some uh, personal problem solving and, and determine that um, if they add seven beats, uh, it's a nice round number and they don't have to walk. They can continue to jog the whole time and they get down this, uh, this rabbit hole and they're oftentimes supported by their peer group to just forget this frustratingly slow pace. So I think, um, again, we're, we're really asking you to be honest here and assess your progress and, you know, echoing your, your most profound message, like it shouldn't be this way that you have to struggle and suffer and deal with injuries, setbacks, illness, and things like that are not necessarily part of the sport of endurance, um, but they just seem to be in there for most people. Yeah, this is not a sport where you have two people running toward each other at full speed and colliding. Uh, you, you would think that was the case by looking at some of the injuries, but, but monitor your health monitor all those signs and symptoms, uh, being hungry, uh, getting a cold, being physically injured, biochemically injured, um, and look at your fitness. You should be progressing. Uh, again, do anything you want in training and eating, but monitor your health and fitness. And if you don't see objective improvements, then you know what you're doing isn't working. If you do see these objective improvements long-term, then go with it. Love it. That's great. Um, can I ask you a, a question that comes up a lot in um, these groups and that I actually have a personal interest in too, which is, can we do a little bit of clarification on your recommendation? You know, you've said before um, that you shouldn't be out there running or probably running, I guess for more than say two and a half to three hours at a time, maybe a little bit more flexibility on the bike since it's not quite so hard on the body. Um, so for those people who are following the, MAF method, but they're also training for 
a hundred K race or a hundred mile race where they're going to be out there for 24 to 30 hours. Um, can we do some clarification on kind of the volume question? Yeah, it, it's somewhat individual, but there's there's an important issue here. And I've trained a lot of ultra marathoners um, and and I've learned a lot from training those people. Um, I learned early on when I worked with Stu Middleman that uh, we don't need to train for 24 hours if we're doing a 24 hour race. We don't need to train for 24 hours straight or 48 hours straight if we're doing a a six-day race. Um, the body has the capability to go way beyond what it does in training. And um, and I, I trained for a six-day race at, at one point and learned some really important lessons about that issue, even though I knew the physiology, just experiencing it was really wonderful. Um, we don't have to run 26 miles if we're training for a marathon. Uh, and I'm always reminded when we have this conversation of, an, of a, a runner that I worked with early on in my career who ran every New York City marathon. And he worked for the fire department. He was a captain in the New York City Fire Department. Very busy, had a house and a family in the country. Very busy person, didn't have time to train a whole lot. Uh, half of his training was spent on the roof of the uh, the the firehouse, running the perimeter of the roof, which was probably no more than 150 meters, uh, um, because he couldn't leave the building. Um, never ran more than 25 miles a week, and always ran under three hours. He was, you know, when I first saw him, he was probably 40. Uh, ran ran under three hours for years and years uh, at that level of training. So we, we don't need sure. Would he have run better if he was able to run more more miles? Probably not necessarily, but probably. Um, we don't need these massive volumes if we're competing in events that are long events. The longer the event, the slower we go, and we could literally uh, go into some of these long events with very little training, and you'll hear that from a lot of people, uh, and do quite well because um, the dependency on the training factor gets less and less as the distance gets gets longer. So I think um, with an ultramarathon, um, say a 24-hour race, uh, you, you have – the issue of being on your feet for a long time. You have the issue of being on a track for a long time. If, if you've never run on a track for three hours, try it sometime. It's hard. It's really hard. And you have to train to do that. And I would, I would have the ultra marathoners who were going to be racing on a track or a, a, a one-mile loop, for example, train on a really small, small area because – you need to get used to that. You need to understand. You need to play this mind game uh, properly. Otherwise, the 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 venue becomes a stress, and you don't need any more stresses in a in a race. I mean, I think people are. This is one of the things that people have started to adhere to really rigidly, though. Is like never go out for longer than two and a half hours. 
or, you know, it's like you set your watch, you walk for 30 minutes, you run for two and a half hours, and then you hit the two and a half hour mark. And no matter how you're feeling and how your fueling is going and all that, then you, your watch beeps, it's been two and a half hours and now you have to start walking. Yeah. Uh, I, I think, you know, I think if you follow your heart rate, you're okay. <clears throat> you will develop fatigue. That fatigue is going to be, uh, is going to show itself as a higher heart rate and therefore slowing pace. Uh, if you're doing an ultra race and you're going to be walking in the race, which depending on the race and depending on the person, in most cases, you will do some walking, whether it's just because there's a really steep uphill and you're a front of the pack runner or because it's a long race and part of your strategy is that you're going to be walking, which is a really good strategy. Um, you want to learn to walk uh, using Stu Middleman again. Uh, he, he only walked in the races before I saw him when he got tired and he had to walk and he really couldn't walk very well. And so I trained him to walk just like I trained him to run at a lower heart rate. And I wanted him to learn to walk, uh, at a very low heart rate. And I don't remember the exact numbers, but, but he would initially be walking at a nine thirty pace, say at a one twenty five heart rate. And then as time went on, he could walk a nine-minute pace at a 125 heart rate. And eventually, he was able to walk at an eight-minute pace at the same level of intensity. So now in a race, he's able to walk at a much faster pace with much less stress during his downtimes when he wasn't running and, and accumulate the miles. So for a six-day race or a 25 uh, a 24-hour, 48-hour race or, a, uh, you know, whatever. Um, that's very significant. Um, so you need to learn to do what you're going to be doing in your race. If, if you even think you're going to be walking, you need to train yourself to walk efficiently or economically is the right word. And if you don't do that in training, then uh, it's not going to work in a race. Just because you put in the time and the hours in training doesn't mean necessarily you're going to be economical in your race. Um, the other, the, the, the important point too, is that if you never run more than two and a half hours and you're going to go into a 24 hour race, um, you're going into unknown territory beyond that two and a half hour point. And if that's stressful, then you need to Figure out how you're going to train to do that. And that might mean going for a two-and-a-half-hour run on the track, uh, sitting down and, and, and resting or maybe walking for half an hour, then running for another hour or two, and, ex, and ex, you know, doing a walk-run workout where you're extending your time on on the course without the stress. Right. I think the big picture concept of so important of, of just moderating the overall stress of the training program so that you can come into these incredibly uh, challenging races just as a healthy person with a healthy mindset, ready to, ready to try to run a hundred miles across the mountains and the people that try to duplicate that effort over and over. And I think the most extreme and memorable example I have is when I was training with Johnny G and he was training for the race across America. And in the old days, they didn't have these relays or these four stops. It was a nonstop 
bicycle race from from the West Coast to New York City. And the gun went off literally uh, on the beach in, in Southern California. And the first guy that got to New York, all no holds barred, was the winner. And so Johnny did a lot of 24-hour training rides to prepare because he was knowing he was going for a nine-day nonstop bicycle race. But I think in the process, he got himself overtrained because a 24-hour bicycle ride is not easy. And, and maybe there was a call to do one or two rather than seven or eight or nine. I think all the ultra endurance athletes especially can relate to this idea where you don't have to approximate the challenge in training over and over and over again. You might do it once or twice and that's plenty and then save everything up to see if you can actually run 50 miles in one day. And lo and behold, a lot of people succeed when they would be called quote unquote overtrained, but they're, I mean, undertrained, but they're not really undertrained. They're optimally trained because you, you don't need to approximate such a d- difficult, uh, competitive challenge. Yeah, this is, this is the, 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 the learning the lesson over and over again. Why do people need to learn lessons on their own? Why can't they take some advice from people who have been through and Mark Allen and I were, were talking about this um, not not too long ago. Uh, you know, why aren't young athletes who are coming up booming, bursting on the scene and doing really well and then disappearing because of burnout and injury? Why aren't they taking common sense advice from from people like Mark, people who have been through this? Uh, I, I don't know the answer to that. I, I was podcasting with Mark and I, I asked him, or maybe it was off the air even, but I said, you know, are the, are the young Ironman candidates beating down your door? Literally, are they showing up on your doorstep begging you for advice? And he said, no. And I think he's, you know, publicly advised a couple guys and there's been articles about, I don't know if it was Maca or somebody was crediting Mark with some help, but it's kind of funny that these guys are minding their own business, surfing the waves in Santa Cruz while people are trying to figure out the puzzle that, you know, he already solved. Yeah, it's 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 interesting. And I've 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 worked uh, with on on some athletes uh, recently. We you know, we we've been working with uh, uh, somebody up in up in Boulder, Tim. Uh, and and but but generally you're, you're right. Uh you know, they're out there, they're, um, they're getting some initial success and they think, Oh, I know just what to do. I'm not going to ask any of these old farts, uh, you know, how to have a, a, a great long career. Um, it's really sad because it's so easy. It's so easy to run a great marathon. It's, I, we know what to do to get a marathoner to run 159. And that, that capability exists today. There's no question about that on, on a scientific level. We know how to get an, an Ironman athlete um, to to progress to win that race. We know how to, you know, and, and, and I, could, I could talk the same way in any sport because I've been through it. Um, the ability to improve human performance is relatively simple. All you need to do is let the body progress by making sure it stays healthy. You know, we naturally progress. So if we do nothing, we should get faster. The problem is we don't do nothing. We interfere with the body. And so that natural progress no longer happens. It gets, it gets beat down by uh, overtraining, uh, by, by eating bad and impairing fat burning and uh, 
diminishing our health. We're, we're you know, uh, a, 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 every sport is a sport of fit but unhealthy athletes. And please, uh, and I know this group has, has read this article, um, but everyone should make sure they read the article on the No Pain, No Gain Society. This is not a sports problem. This is a social problem. We have a problem in society that came from Ben Franklin, of all people, who wasn't even an athlete, of no pain, no gain. Um, and, 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 and the no pain, no gain doesn't just show up when we step on the track or go to the race line. It, it, it's in our lives from an early age um, across the board, and, and it's something we need to deal with if we're going to be successful. Phil, you've been super generous with your time this morning. So I just want to ask you two, these will be rapid fire questions. Um, Just two quick questions to wrap up from the group. This one by popular demand. I'm just going to read it. Will one to two beers be okay after a long run of four to six hours? And would you prefer light (laughs) to IPA? And people wanted to know the answer to this question. What is Phil Maffetone's official stance on beer after a long run? And then someone chimed in and said, how about during? Uh, Of course, we use alcohol, you know, as an energy source, um, I I I think the problem is that when we're when we're dehydrated and, and if we're stressed from training, uh, uh, adding alcohol to our system isn't going to help us, and and it risks uh, hurting ourselves. So have some water first if you need to have food. You know, if it's that if it's the case where you wake up in the morning, you don't eat, you you go to a race which a lot of people will do, uh, if that works for you, fine. You race or you go to, a, to your run, you do your run, you finished your run, and now you want to have a, a beer or two. Uh, you haven't eaten any food and you're, you may be dehydrated. Um, that's a problem when you add alcohol to, to the body. So have some water and have some food first. Um, in terms of beer, uh, I... I don't drink beer because I'm allergic to wheat. Um, beer, a, a much higher amount of carbohydrate than wine or other alcohol. So if, if your uh, insulin sensitivity is okay, I have no, I have no problem with that. Great. People will be thrilled to hear that. I'm sure. Very happy. They'll run out and celebrate. <laughs> <laughs> um, and then let me ask you this last question, which I actually, I think is really good. And I'm very interested to hear your answer. What do you think is the most misunderstood part of the whole MAF approach? The MAF approach. <laughs> <laughs> just the whole thing. I think People the, just I, don't get it. <laughs> yeah, I think the, the, the big issue is that um, MAF is an open system. It's not a technique. It's not a training technique. It's not a diet. It's an open system. It's a system that you can use in conjunction with anything and everything else you do in training, with your diet, with your meditation, whatever you're, whatever you're doing in life, if you're getting healthier and you're getting more fit, you should be able to measure that. And that's what NAF is all about, evaluating your health and fitness. And one of the things I spent most of my time with when I worked with athletes was evaluating them. It took a long time to figure out what I wanted to recommend in terms of training, 
what I needed to do from a therapeutic standpoint, what kind of changes we need to do with the diet. That was quick. That was a few minutes. But I would spend hours evaluating athletes to figure out what was the most primary thing for this individual right now. And I think that's um, a very important thing. The misunderstanding is that people don't quite get that in many cases. Um, and, and that open system is, is a very important part of MAF. I feel like I've learned so much from talking to you for these last two hours, Phil. And I thought I understood everything about this method before. So I really appreciate you taking a whole morning to talk to us and to share your insights on the method. Dr. Phil Maffetone, hitting it hard. Been my pleasure, uh, Lindsay and Brad. Thank you. And go check out The Overfat Pandemic, Phil's new book, just released here in the fall of 2017. And of course, philmaffetone.com, which is getting nicely updated blog posts and constantly thought-provoking information. You'll enjoy it very much. Thank you, listeners, for listening to the podcast. This is your host, Brad Kearns. Have a great day. Hi, this is Brad Kearns to tell you about Primal Endurance Online Multimedia Educational Mastery Course. And what we have done for the past year is basically bring the book Primal Endurance to life with a series of videos and other multimedia educational material, audio, ebooks, all accessed at this online portal with everything you need to succeed in endurance training. And if you're trying to do this stuff, if you're enjoying these compelling challenges and trying not to get sick, injured, burnt out, fried, this is going to help you approach your endurance goals in a healthy, balanced manner and promote your health rather than compromise it. Get away from carbohydrate dependency and progress toward fat adaptation. It's over 120 videos, many with the experts and also many others with the step-by-step instruction of what's in the book. So if you're too busy to read or you'd like to have a more comprehensive learning experience, check out Primal Endurance online. You'll have everything you need there at primalendurance.fit.